If you were here last week um, or you listened to the podcast, you'll remember that the writer to the Hebrews talked about Jesus um, as being superior to the Levitical priests. They were the priests who served Israel from the time of Moses um, up until prior to Jesus' time um, for about 1,500 years, in fact. Uh, Jesus was far superior to them. In fact, he was a bit more like another priest, in fact, a priest king, it said in chapter 7, the priest king Melchizedek, who is the king of Salem, uh, the ancient uh, land as we think is Jerusalem. Uh, this Melchizedek appears only briefly in Genesis chapter 14, a few verses, and it's like he comes out of nowhere and he goes into nowhere, he disappears, he has no ancestors. It looks a little, little bit like he's this uh, eternal character. And uh, King David, as we learned last week, um, uh, when he read about Genesis, Genesis 14 and read uh, about Melchizedek, he, he thought to himself, this guy looks so like this amazing priest who's eternal. He seems to have no, no parents and no offspring and no death even, no birth. He's not actually eternal, but it's like he's eternal. And imagine, thinks King David, if there really was an eternal king and a priest like Melchizedek. Imagine that. And so, and so King David wrote a psalm about that, Psalm 110. And that became this sort of hope, this song of hope that one day this king priest would come who would be so much better than all the Levitical priests that had been there, who were limited men, who were sinners, who couldn't really achieve the intimacy with God that King David was longing for for his people. And uh, the writer to the Hebrews has told us already in chapter 7 that Jesus is the fulfilment of that. He is that one. He's the king priest who um, is in the order of Melchizedek. He's like Melchizedek. He's not like the other priests that we've just had for the last 1,500 years. He cannot be touched by death. He really is eternal. He can offer a sacrifice that will never need to be repeated. He's so pure that he doesn't need to offer a sacrifice for his own sins. So Jesus Christ, as chapter 7 has taught us, is the king of kings, the priest of priests. Right. So as the passage begins in chapter 8, now the main point of what we're saying, because, you know, let's face it, this is complicated. And uh, the writer of the Hebrews is trying to bring us back to the main point. And he says this, Two, two ideas at the very start of the first two verses of this chapter. You might want to look at it. It says, first of all, this Jesus King priest who has come has sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And this is the final proof of his glory. As a king, he has glory. There is no other king who has had more glory than this King Jesus sitting on his throne. But secondly... He's not just some kind of a king that sits on his throne and gets all the glory, like some kind of egotistical king who just loves everyone to bow down to him. But in fact, he has a ministry in this, on this throne that he sits in. Um, it says, he serves in the sanctuary. This is proof that he, as a priest, he continues to minister. Jesus isn't just about getting the glory of his throne, he's about doing ministry and serving the world. If you think about religion as having or providing for people access to God, that's what the, the Levitical priests were trying to do, providing access to God. 
They offered a kind of an access to God, but they were limited. Look at what verse 5 says. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. The the Levitical priests who came before Jesus performed their religious duties using really clear instructions from God. But those instructions were like a sketch, like the architectural drawings, kind of, or the sketch of the architectural drawings um, of what Jesus is actually doing in heaven. Even the tabernacle built by Moses. So um, those of you who've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark know about the Ark of the Covenant. So, you know, and you hope maybe you know it because of the Bible as well. Um, so that held the Ten Commandments. And before the temple was built, the big temple um, in the time of King Solomon, before that there was a tent built, a very um, carefully built tent. And in that tent, um, special religious uh, rites were performed. And that was where the very presence of God was. And it says it in the passage that God gave Moses very clear instructions to do that properly, to set that up properly, because those instructions were pointing to a greater truth. They were kind of, it was kind of like a miniature of the throne room in heaven, but it wasn't actually the throne room in heaven. And also, as the priests performed their duties, it was kind of like a, a sketch or a shadow of the actual ministry that the king priest Jesus, who is in the order of Melchizedek, will one day do. So what the passage is saying is, and we've said this before, the ministry of the Levitical priests who operated under the old way of doing things or the old covenant, as this passage uses that word, they didn't provide enough. They couldn't do enough. There was need for a better covenant. Look at verse 7. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another the first covenant, the first way of doing religion, providing access to God, it came up short. It missed the mark because it wasn't able to deliver the fullness of the relationship with God, which, which are what priests are supposed to be able to provide. That's what God desired for humanity. He wanted a fullness of that relationship with his people. The old priests were sinners. And they were the ones who implemented the old covenant. So... There were, there, were, there were problems. There needed to be a new, a better covenant that could deliver the fullness of the relationship God desired with his people and that wasn't dependent on sinful priests. And we have that new covenant, says chapter 8, under the ministry of the king priest in the order of Melchizedek, Jesus. That's where we've got that new covenant. Jesus' ministry isn't exercised in some kind of earthly replica of a of a sanctuary using a sketch of a heavenly ministry but Jesus' ministry is the heavenly ministry his ministry does provide the fullness of that relationship between God and people so therefore his ministry and his covenant, the new covenant is superior the old priests ministered under the old covenant, Jesus the priest of priests rules over the new covenant and he serves in that new covenant He's the ultimate mediator. And this leads us to focus in on, and the passage focuses in on, why this new covenant is so much better. 
let's, let's look at the detail because it gives us some. This, this better, new, better and new covenant, it's not like, sometimes we think this when we're learning about the Bible, that God messed up and he had to go back to the drawing board and then come up with a plan B. That's not what the new covenant is. Because we actually see from this passage that God was talking about this new covenant while, while we were under the old covenant. He already knew about it. And we have this big quote, the biggest quote in the New Testament, just for a bit of trivia next time you're doing Bible trivia, in Hebrews 8, that comes from Je- Je- Jeremiah chapter 31. And you can see it there starting in um, verse 8. Um, and it has three parts to this quote. First of all, it says, Jeremiah, who's, who, who's prophesying in the Old Testament times, is before Jesus when, when the Israelites uh, were, were in exile and they were away from their land, so, you know, suffering under a foreign empire. And um, this promise, this prophecy comes through the prophet Jeremiah that says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. So the Lord is promising a time when he's going to make this new covenant with his people. Now the second part of this prophecy in verse 9 says that the new covenant is going to supersede the old one. It says, it will not be like the, old, like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because I did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turn away from them, declares the Lord. So he's already introduced this word new in verse 8, this new covenant. And what he does here is he, he, he makes this, he qualifies what he's saying in, a negative, in negative terms, in that this covenant's not going to be like the one I did with Moses. Why? Because those who I led out of Egypt did not remain faithful to me, says God in verse 9. So this will be a full upgrade of religions. This old covenant will be superseded by the new covenant. So to the Jewish Christians who are listening to this, this instruction in the letter, the point was, if you're getting a bit nostalgic about your old religion, um, don't go back because it's been superseded. Don't go back to the old way of doing sacrifices and going to the temple. That was like, those guys were doing the sketch of what Jesus is offering the full version of. You know, don't don't go back to, um, you know, a palm pilot when you can have an iPhone. Sorry, this is modern technology. Remember Palm Pilots? Probably some people were born after Palm Pilots in the room. You had to do the sketching, the pen. And don't sort of, don't sort of get an old car that stopped working and is rusting on the side of the road and try and drive it away because you, you have fond memories of those old days in the old car. Look at verse 13. By calling this covenant new, he, was made the fir- he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. It's outdated. Now, I know that no one in this room, as far as I know, I'm pretty sure, 100%, no one's slipping back into the old Levitical priesthood religion. I haven't had anyone knock on my door. Sorry, um, Pastor, Reverend Caroline, I'm thinking about performing some sacrifices with the... Uh, this is not an issue for us, and it isn't for most Christians in the West. We're not likely to slip back to the old covenant. 
So what is, what is the point for us today? Why is this relevant? Why is it more than just some interesting ideas in Hebrews chapter 8? Firstly, we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that Judaism was some kind of second-rate religion or a terrible religion. We shouldn't devalue what God did in the Old Covenant. The covenant God gave to Moses was magnificent. It was God's law. It was written on stone. For the first time, the people could read out what God's intention was for them. It, it wasn't useless to them. This was God speaking to them. So, because that's the case, we as Christians shouldn't become triumphalistic. Triumphalist, triumphalism or being triumphalistic means you're overconfident in yourself to the point where you look down and talk down to other people. You're, you, you think to yourself, well, we're, we're Christians and we've got the superior covenant, so everyone else should just listen to us. We shouldn't do that because, for a whole lot of reasons, mainly because it's not the Christ-like way. It's not human. It's not showing humility, and it's missing the point that we've got this superior covenant not because we're superior, but because Christ is superior. That's why. So let's think about how this might play itself out. We shouldn't think we're superior to others when we're engaging in public debate. So we're seeing every day on the news now stuff about the plebiscite on same-sex marriage coming up, and you know people arguing about what. Malcolm Turnbull's how he's applying money to people who are pro and against same-sex marriage. And um, <clears throat> the danger is that for either Christians who are um, for the traditional view of marriage, being between a man and woman, or for Christians who are for uh, same-sex marriage, that either party will become triumphalistic, that we will talk down to the, uh, the, 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 the other party and we'll um, kind of have, carry a kind of air of superiority about whatever position we hold. It's not a good look for the church uh, on either side of the argument. Uh, we've got to come into this debate realising that we're in a faith and uh, under a covenant because of what Jesus has done for us. The culture wars are escalating at the moment, especially in America. They are, they are caught in arguments about race and racism and um, we should be careful that, that as this emerges in Australia again under you know, Paul and Hanson, it's, it's, we're hearing little bits of it, that as the church we're not caught up in this kind of arrogance that we start throwing our weight around it in an unhelpful way. Because if we just look back in history, not very far back, 60, 70, 80 years, this is how anti-Semitism took off in Germany. Because there was a there was an argument used that Christians have the superior covenant, so therefore the Jews have the inferior, outdated one, therefore we can persecute them. Now, I know we're not unlikely to become Nazis here as well, but look, look what's happening with the evangelicals supporting Donald Trump. There's something gone wrong. A spanner is in the works over in America. Let's make sure that doesn't happen here. The New Testament is not anti-Jewish. The New Testament sees Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. The point is God needed to bring about the new covenant partly because we failed and the priests failed and we needed a priest who wasn't going to fail and that is Jesus. So that's in the passage. That's a lot. Thirdly though, and this is the big point, the promise of the new covenant is that you will get a new heart. Verse 10. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, 
I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. The details of the new covenant are described positively. The laws of God be written on their hearts. It's not just written on tablets. People will know God intimately in a way that they never have before. Their sins will be forgiven. The new covenant establishes a new relationship with God that was not possible under the Levitical priesthood. In this new relationship, the laws of God are internalised. God forgives us completely. This is a big change. This is the biggest change from the old to the new covenant. And this is the heart of what it means to be a Christian. God takes your heart of stone and turns it into a heart of flesh. You can know God intimately now. The relationship between God and his people will be established firmly so that everyone in this covenant will know God inside their hearts. And as fallen human beings who have sin waging war on our hearts, who wrestles with us telling us that things are true that are not true, you see, we don't instinctively want to be obedient to God. The only way we can be obedient is with this new heart. God's people's hearts are changed through the gospel and continue to change through the work of the Spirit. And this new heart leads to a new kind of knowing of God. See, there's playing with cards, cars when you're a little kid. You play with your matchbox cars and you drive them around and you do burnouts and you smash them into things and it's really fun. And then they're sitting behind the wheel of a real car when you have your first lesson and driving away, pulling your foot on the accelerator, lifting your left foot off the the clutch, moving into second gear. It's a completely new way of knowing about cars, isn't it? There's looking at a printed poster of Van Gogh's um, sunflowers on your bedroom wall. And then there's going to the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam, like I did, and I walked up the stairs, and there I was standing before the very real sunflower painting, three dimensions, you know, the rough uh, surface of the oil paints and the light shining off it. There's watching movies set in New York City and knowing about the Empire State Building and the Statue of Liberty. And then there's getting out of the cab and standing in Times Square and hearing the hum like we did in 2010. That's a new kind of knowing. There's the knowing about God because his standards for holiness and religion are written down on, on, on st- t- you know, stone, tablets, instructions, and you can do your very best to try and memorise them and write them on the doorpost of your house. You can try and memorise it. But then that's one thing, and then there's another thing. There's the Holy Spirit transforming your heart so that you know in your heart what, what God's will is for your life and what God's standards of obedience are and, and who God is. Your old cold stone heart is taken out and your new fleshly heart is put in. You can have a new nature. Now you have the ability, the power to follow God. Now God is your God and you are his people. This is the difference between knowing in theory and knowing in reality. Knowing in your gut. It's the difference between listening to the album and seeing it at the concert. It's the difference between imagining the kiss and feeling it on your lips. 
It's the difference between the recipe on the page and eating the meal. It's the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So through Jesus, through his eternal king, priestly ministry, in the throne room of heaven, the sanctuary of heaven, he gives us this new heart. This is the ministry he's doing in a full way. It's not just reading a book anymore. It's knowing him in your hearts. No longer will they teach their neighbour, it says in verse 11, or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. And here he is talking in hyperbole, because what am I doing now? I'm teaching, and and we teach each other still. So we do still teach under the new covenant. But what he's saying is, it's vastly different. Everyone has access to this knowledge of God, not just the priests, not, not just the religious authorities, young people, old people, people of different levels of education. But because of Jesus' eternal priestly ministry, under this new covenant, we are supernaturally changed, so we know him at a whole other level. Intimate knowledge of God is something beyond what the old covenant offered. There was a sense in which the people of Israel knew their God because he had revealed himself to them, which was in contrast to the other nations who didn't know him. Yeah, they did know who he was, but in the new covenant community, everyone can know God directly. You don't need the priestly system anymore. In Christ, God is most fully revealed. And this is how we get eternal life. So again, let's think about how this applies. Being a Christian isn't really about your external practices. External practices matter, like going to church really matters for Christians. It's really important. You should go to church as much as you can. Church services I'm talking about. Um, You should be a moral person and live out the standards of Christian morality. But that doesn't make you a Christian. You should serve in ministry and get involved in our church life and serve the poor in action. But that doesn't make you a Christian. That's not the essence of being a Christian. The essence of being a Christian is actually found in this quote from Jeremiah 31. It's about your heart being transformed. It's about receiving a new heart and knowing God intimately, having your sins permanently forgiven. This is the new covenant. So I ask you, do you have an internalised faith? Do you actually have a new heart? Do you actually know God? You might be involved in lots of ministries at church and outside of church, but is your heart changed? Because the problem is if your heart isn't changed, you're going to fall over. You will fail in the same way that the Israelites failed and in the same way that the Levitical priests failed. You'll know about God intellectually, but not in your heart. You serve a God you don't really know very well. You might have heard consultants uh, talk about the iceberg metaphor. It's used for lots of things and it applies to the Christian faith. Only 10%, if you think of an iceberg, only 10% of it you see, it's the bit above the water. 90% of the iceberg is below the surface of the water. If the 90% which is below the surface of the water melts away because of climate change and the the sea is warming up, it it fades away, you might still see the top for a while, but then as soon as there's another iceberg bump into it or something bumps into it, it topples over and sinks and dissolves. 
For the Christian, our actions are going to church, our moral outward behaviour, our serving of the poor, um, all of these things that are good things to do is the 10% above the, above the surface of the water, the bits that everyone can see. The 90% below the surface is what Jeremiah 31 promised. It's the new heart. It's the intimacy with God. It's the forgiveness of sins. It's knowing God intimately. And if you don't have that, your iceberg is going to fall down. So what do you do? What do you do? If you think this might be you, if your faith might just be actions and not heart transformation, I can challenge you to do one, only one thing. Because you can't do your own heart transformation. You can't do it. You have to ask Jesus to do it for you. This is his ministry. This is his whole KPI, his job description. Transform people's hearts. Forgive them of their sins. Create knowledge of God in people. That is the only way you can get it. So I challenge you to pray and ask for that if you think this might be you. So I'm going to finish and give you that opportunity to do that now. I'll pray a line. You can pray it after me in your heart, in your mind, out loud if you want. Lord Jesus, I acknowledge that without you, I cannot know God. I acknowledge that without you, I cannot be forgiven. And I acknowledge that without you, I cannot have a new heart. Please change me, transform me, give me a new heart of flesh. I want to serve you. I want to know God. Amen.